Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Talk about past lives. We seem to be made of them, and they follow us around like tin cans into every new day. This program features the work of 2015 writer Linda Andrews. Curator Kevin Kraft spoke with her in an interview. Tell me about your current project. What is it you're, you're working on right now as a Jack Stroll Fellow? What I proposed was that I would write um, sort of a, a almost a collage, a series of small snippets about female characters. And it's been developing since I wrote my artist statement about what I, what I wanted to do for this project. And it's becoming almost like a high boon. There's there are some prose pieces, little prose pieces, a piece that sounds almost like exposition, another piece that's a poem, and then a follow-up. So it's, it's, it's changing its nature as it goes along. It feels to me like each section is responding to the female that's being written about. Some of them are birds and some of them are females, mm-hmm. human females. And I'm having a good time with it. I worked on it a lot on the ride over here. I just kept reading it out loud over and over again to my husband and, and playing with it. And so it's it's coming along. You can work. You can write in the, in the he, car while as he you drive. Dri- he drives. I read and, and, and make notes and we talk about it. And that's that's it. actually how my book got done, My Escape of the Bird Women. Mm-hmm. It was, it was uh, published by Blue Begonia Press several years ago. <laughs> and the editor, Jim Bodine, when he accepted my manuscript, he said, okay, now what I want you to do is read everything out loud and make changes and read the entire thing. So we drove through the Palouse and I read out loud and moving things around and making little changes and I sent it back to Jim. I said, okay, I did it. And he said, great, now do it again. And I did and we just read the whole thing out loud, fine tuning everything. He said, I want this to last for you. I don't want you to ever feel like, oh, that poem shouldn't have been in there. Or that line, it always did bother me and I had to and you didn't have the chance to take it out. He said, I just want you to have that chance to polish and polish and polish. And it was great advice, which I now burden my writing students with. <laughs> do it again. Now read it out loud and do it again. That suggests that the oral aspects of poetry are very important to Absolutely. you. Absolutely. You want those phrases the, sound, the musicality of the phrases to fit together. And if you feel like something's jarring up against something else, it, it suggests that that might need to be smoothed out, polished, a different word. And it's amazing how I think we can write something and we can get intensely sensitive about every single word. And just, you know, if you have that feeling like, ah, oh, that's not quite the right word, that's the one that's got to go. Or sometimes there's a line that you love and you realize that it just doesn't fit and it's got to go. But yeah, I think it's so important to hear what we write through our voice. It's the best way, I think, that we know what we're writing about. Let's talk a little bit about the haibun, um, the back and forth between poetry and prose. What advantage do you see in that form? Well, as I've been working on this piece, it seemed to me that especially one of the pieces, it's something I've been wanting to write about for about 10 years. And every time I try to write it in prose, it's just it just clunks, and I just it's like too expositional. It just I couldn't get it to lift off the ground. And when I was working on this, finally this woman emerged 
in the form of a poem. And I was thrilled. It's like I'm finally delivering her. I've been wanting to tell her story for a very long time. And uh, there she was. And that was the form. And it's like, Amy, if I'm ever going to tell your story, I think this is the moment. So come on, girl. And she died a few years ago. So it's like, here's your chance. Let's work on this together. And um, there it was. It was a poem. And there's something that I think because the story about her is is kind of ethereal. It needed to take that form. It needed to take a poetic form rather than a prose form. And yet it works being introduced by a prose piece and coming out into another little prose piece. It works. And I was just really, really happy that that story emerged in the form that it needed to take. Well, um, why don't we hear a poem? Okay. Uh, there's a fine poet known to all Jack Straw people named Kathleen Flanagan, and she has a poem that's called, I think it's called What I Learned Weeding. And I loved that poem, and I felt a response coming, and mine is called What I Learned Gardening. What I Learned Gardening. Deep into October... The good weather holds long enough, I hope, for the amber rose to bloom once more. I check on the bud every day, holding off the coming frost with my warm breath. I crush every aphid that notices how the bud cover is beginning to break, showing a slip of color. When the rose gets close to opening, I will gather the last handful of fall raspberries and hold their red against the amber bud mingle their late-season sweetness, their perfectly calibrated fall burst of color. As with any love, I will protect and nurture, and finally, at the moment of possibility, lure it into the house and force it into bloom. Wow. Very nice. Yeah. There's some interesting tension in that poem. It it starts off uh, with a sort of traditional poetic stance, the poet and a rose, one mm-hmm. last rose. Mm-hmm. But by the end, you've certainly gotten to a place that is a little bit more forceful and mm-hmm. deliberate, even belligerent. Can you talk about that? Yes, I like that mix of kind of good and evil. And I think it's unexpected at the end to talk about forcing. But that's a that's a gardening term, to force a bloom. Like you bring in bulbs in the winter, and you force them. I mean, that's the common term. So I kind of liked using a common gardening term to kind of undercut and darken the idea of what you do with love and to, to and I kind of get into that idea of forcing with the word of luring and finally at the moment of possibility, lure it into the house and force it into bloom. And I like the force of the word force. It's, a, it's, it's an abrupt and sharp word to think about putting next to this gorgeous amber rose. Um, You mentioned teaching a lot. Can you talk a little bit more about how teaching and writing combine or collide in your life? As a teacher, I think one of the best things, or maybe the best thing I can do, is when a student comes up with a good line to say, there it is. Listen to this. And sometimes they don't even realize what they've written. But I say, this is a beautiful space in your piece. This is a great sentence. Listen to this paragraph. And to help young people recognize something in themselves that they have not yet seen is one of the great joys of teaching and also bringing them other artists who might 
be on their wavelength in terms of age or experience. I feel such a privilege to be with them as they are on the verge of becoming who they will be and hope that these poems, these books, inform their decision-making in the future so that they have a perhaps a more elegant life or a more thoughtful or conscious life because they've got these stories of other people who've lived through something and that they might be able to take advice or strength or courage from. And that sort of being on the other side of the page, helping them see what is beautiful in what they've done also helps me in my writing, helps me see what I've done well. I don't know, it just seems to work together. Yeah. But I really feel like I'm at the place where I'm kind of passing things on. Now we'll hear a selection from Linda's live reading. This piece is kind of a mosaic of female characters. It's both human and animal, I must say, and you'll hear a couple of poems, some interstitial prose, and ending with a little story at the end, and all of these are, in their own way, nonfiction. I'll start with a notation from an Audubon handbook that says that incidentals are birds who are blown off course, who, due to weather or other natural variables, are exiled in a different place than their natural habitat. And this section is called Incidentals. Once upon a time, there was a chicken. Actually, it was just last Thursday, but there was a bit of fairy tale <laughs> as I walked east away from home toward the farmy part of town. There she was on her porch. The hen was beautiful, huge and white, feathers in the breeze kicking up, fluffing up, but the house was beneath her. It was thoroughly chintzed <laughs> with a ceramic dalmatian by the door, gnomes in their little red hats around the lawn, a miniature flowered wheelbarrow, a handmade sign that called this place a little bit of paradise. <laughs> and the majestic, unfake living hen was on a leash, a leash and a harness, really. She paced the porch, shoulders back, chest out, stepping over and around the long blue tether of paradise. And I had to give her credit for that, for not acknowledging that she was trapped. But why the leash? Had she been a naughty, runaway sort of hen? <laughs> Did she think she could escape the requirement of laying eggs? Were they saving her for the state fair or for supper? I could believe she had a past with that fine white chest of hers, any female with that much authority would feel ready for the world. Go on, fold your wings back and see if the body doesn't tell you something. Cuto, an old friend called it, C-U-T-O, chin up, tits out. <laughs> I know I said I was walking away from home, but I walked back. There's a leash on me too, maybe on a lot of us. The leash that says stay where love is and safety and someone to care for. Call it the leash of paradise, and we might step over it sometimes, but are glad to feel that tether. Later that day, I was driving home from getting groceries, and there was a young woman, her hair, her red hair, shining in the sun, her skin remarkably pale for July, and she walked the broken sidewalk with one hand holding up her shirt. I thought maybe she was just hot 
or trying to soak up some vitamin D. But she showed a big belly, eight months or so along, so pale as if she herself had been incubating, had just come out in the sun for the first time, her belly leading her down the sidewalk. The hand that wasn't holding up the shirt was hanging at her side, holding a lit cigarette, a bright wisp of smoke as white as her skin trailing after her, a contrail with firepower, a visible streak in her wake. And strangely, she reminded me of the Blessed Virgin Mary, pregnant at 13 in the triptych by Campine from 1430. He envisioned something like this very young redhead and pictured Mary just minding her own business, reading a book when the angel Gabriel shows up. She doesn't even realize he's in the room and just keeps reading. She also doesn't realize that the deal will be done because a little sprite, a tiny figure of the Christ child, is already flying in through a round window, already bearing his suffering and hers, carrying a tiny cross across his shoulder as he flies toward her on a ray of light, a trail of light. And why? To be incarnate, to be embodied like us. I am not the hen, nor the young woman with red hair, certainly not the BVM, but I've had several incarnations, and I wonder now where all my previous selves have gone. What happened to the girl who went to Mass on Sunday, approaching the communion rail with its starched white linens? Where's the one who crossed the bridge from church stories to literature, drawn by the rhythm of fine phrases? Where's the college sophomore who said yes to the grad student, to his offer of a three-month fling on the eve of her first marriage? Where did they go? The devout one, the studious one, the slutty one, the one who believed Elaine May's advice when in doubt, seduce? <laughs> Where's the young wife who waited five years to be a mother, then held her child in that overstuffed brown and yellow plaid chair and felt that life would never be sweeter and was right? Where's the struggling divorcee, the financially terrified one? Talk about past lives. We seem to be made of them, and they follow us around like tin cans into every new day until one of us reaches her last new day. Elegy for Amy, my student. Oh, blessed stretch of finished time. Let us now see her for what she is, laid out in a white dress from neck to wrists, and white gloves, Amy, as if you had crashed on the way to a prom or some fatal costume party. Who knows what insults this body suffered when car met tree. It was the middle of the night. In such darkness, what was there to see? They found you alone in the crash, and your people said to make you visible again in this white dress, white as feathers, as insulting as the tree, because now we can't see your stories your slow try to reclaim yourself from drug lust and heartbreak through ink on paper and ink injected into skin to cover early scars you had made yourself and made of yourself. Her initials should be carved in that tree. How in the name of death have you gone from biker chick to princess, from private slasher to this white quiet? It does not surprise me their desire to remake you but to cover the illuminated manuscript of you pretends you are simply a face in a cloud of white satin, pretends you have already ascended 
and left your story behind in the ink of the earth. Husband, we are having breakfast for supper. French toast and melon, eggs cracked into the blue bowl, a splash of milk, a grind of salt, a fine spray of sugar, shells in the sink. Things couldn't be more ordinary, but we know better. We know the miracle of coming home after an ordinary day. We are bodies that risk living, but try to stay safe inside our nest of pleasure and stories. Before you got home, the wild turkey that's been roosting in our silver maples came down to pace the yard. Every day, she's along our stone path, pecking at sustenance invisible to us. Today, I didn't know I had dropped a green pear from grocery bags, but she found it and pecked it clean, label and all. She is not the dove with the olive branch, but she seemed a sign of peace. She pushed the nub around for all it was worth. Here comes the little story. Archimedes and my mother. The house wasn't much. Brick, post-war box like all the others. A few hundred square feet, seven of us living in it. The front yard had one Dutch elm planted by the city, a modest lawn. The backyard had a chain-link fence, a young maple tree in the middle of the grass, and a vegetable garden. But there was more in the summer. There was the pool. It wasn't the kind of pool you could dive into or even fall into. It was an above-ground pool, blue plastic liner and masonite walls that slotted together, the water about three feet deep and ten feet across. There was a little plastic ladder you had to climb up to get in. As the oldest, I was the assigned lifeguard, and on this day, all five of us kids were in the pool because it was a thick, hot Detroit day. Mom, we called to her in the house, come in the pool. No, she called back, you know I hate water. <laughs> and we knew she hated water, and we knew why. We'd heard the story about her being three and almost drowning, but her being three seemed like such a long time ago, and she was nearly six feet tall. How could she still feel like three years old? And this wasn't one of the Great Lakes with waves that knock babies down and drag them to Wisconsin. <laughs> this was our backyard pool, our one luxury, our big step up from running through the sprinkler, and the day was burning. Mom, come in the pool. She was cooking cow brains or chicken livers for Dad's dinner and didn't answer us. There were different worlds in that pool, like different microclimates or habitats. I was the oldest and didn't care to be splashed. I wanted to glide in my flowered bathing cap. Ken was helping Sue learn how to float, holding her up while she swiveled in his arms. Little Janet bobbed around and splashed people, wearing a swim mask that magnified her bug-like eyes and made her face pooch out. Tom, our science fantasy brother, was mostly underwater, wearing a football helmet with chin strap, mask, and snorkel, pretending to be a deep sea diver. This was our third summer with our beloved pool. Maybe the heat just finally got to her. Maybe the cooking tipped her over the edge. I never knew what made her decide. But suddenly there was Mom, standing on the cement back porch, her skin pure white against a black swimsuit, one she'd resurrected from a long-ago vacation to northern Michigan. She looked almost shy, 
not like herself at all, and she kept pulling down the sides of her suit that once fit better than it did now. I remember her adjusting the strap that looped around her neck, then walking over to the ladder. We stopped and watched her climb awkwardly up the three steps, along the way telling Janet not to splash her, then come down into the pool one slow step at a time. We'd never seen her descend into water before. Once in, she got down so that her shoulders were covered by the cool water. She rested her back against the side and closed her eyes, which is when the pool's plastic wall gave way. <laughs> Sending 250 cubic feet of water rushing into the yard and down the driveway. Little Janet got beached against the back porch. Ken and Sue were left in a tangle on the lawn. Mom and I were pressed against the chain-link fence. And Tom, who had been underwater for the burst, rode the wave the furthest, his helmet full of water, turning him into a torpedo for a ride halfway down the cement driveway till he lay scraped and dazed by his latest deep-sea discovery about the surprising force of tides. When we regrouped in the yard, the grass was like a rice paddy, and in this strange new setting was gaping plastic where deep and lovely water had been. And where there had been swimmers, now stood humans hardened by knowledge. My mother, who never wore her suit again, went back in the house and left us to ponder the reality of science and the lessons of displacement while the heat closed in. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2015 curator of this program is Kevin Kraft. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Daniel Gunther and Levi Fuller. Recording engineers are C.J. Lazenby, Tom Stiles, Mo Preventure, Daniel Gunther, and Steve Tatori. Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by St. Helens String Quartet, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Fort Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>